following message is presented by Fellowship Bible Church from its weekly pulpit ministry. We offer an expositional study through entire books of the Bible, one verse, paragraph, or chapter at a time. We pray that you'll be blessed by listening in. Thanks for visiting. We're going to be privileged to have Brother Widgen to share the word with us this morning. James? Yeah, thank you, brother. We love you, brother, and your ministry. Appreciate it. Thank you. Good morning. We're going to turn again to the book of Obadiah. When you're looking for the book of Obadiah, it's easy to pass right over it and not even notice you got there. I'm holding up one page in my Bible. It has most of Obadiah on each side of that. On the next page, is not even a half, and that's the rest of it. So it's a small little book. 21 verses. But when we consider what it has to say, it has a lot to say that would be, if one was to try to give a detailed explanation of everything that is important that this book points to, then we wouldn't have enough pages to be able to do it. Because there are so many important things that are here in this text. And we're just looking at some of those. Before we... In our early part of looking at this book, we talked about Obadiah, and Obadiah being one who serves the Lord, that he was one who not only had that name, but that he was a faithful servant of the Lord, so that the word that was being delivered, the message that was being proclaimed by him, was the unadulterated word of the living God. That's important. So that when we look at what we have here, one of the marvelous things is that we have here before us a translation that has come to us all these years, decades, centuries, since this material was written. But we have a copy. And there were people who did good work to give us a good copy so that we can read in our language and understand. Clearly, we don't get everything because we don't understand and see the original language and understand all of it. But I want to do something that I did before a bit. When I began to talk about how we would look at the book, I thought it would be good to kind of put it in a broader context than just what we see here, this one minor prophet being at least worthy of all the 12, uh, sitting here in this Old Testament amongst the other 38 books in that Testament. And so what I did then was to draw our attention to uh, chapter 12 in Genesis. And I said that back there, we see something that is important and has a connection to what we see here. And we also pointed to some other texts in Genesis. We see here, it says that Edom is the focus in the early part of this book that is in the crosshairs of the judgment of God, Edom. And we talked about Edom 
and Edomites being descendants of uh, Isaac, Jacob and Esau being brothers, and the Edomites descendant from Jacob, I mean from uh, Esau, and the Israelites descending from, from Jacob. The struggles that those fellows had even before coming out of the womb. And then as we progressed and we looked at what happened a bit in, in their sojourn, the earthly sojourn, <clears throat> we see that we came to the place where there was the issue about the birthright and that Esau despised his birthright. The text tells us that he had a time when he was, to be very simple in the language of it, he was hungry. He wanted his brother Jacob had food. But Jacob said, well, if you will make an agreement with me, I'll give you of this stew. And they did. The agreement was that Jacob that would receive the birthright. Esau would give him the birthright. So Esau's idea was, his opinion was, that he was about to die. So what was the birthright to him? Jacob revered the birthright. It brought responsibilities and status and privilege. And so the, now Jacob had the birthright. Then there came a time when Isaac was old and the time of his earthly sojourn was closing. He wasn't going to be much longer sojourning with them. And so he called Esau in. He had long enjoyed the stew that, that Esau would make from the wild game that he obtained when he was out hunting. And then, so he called him in and said, make me this. And Esau was obviously delighted to do it. But a part of what was to happen was that when he brought that in, he was expecting to get a blessing, the blessing from his father. However, it didn't work out the way he planned. Their mother heard and understood what the scheme was and what was supposed to happen. So, so she devised a scheme and had Jacob go in and pretend and present himself as Esau so that he would get the blessing. One of the things that I found interesting in that story is that Isaac questioned who this man was who had brought him the stew. And he even said that he has the voice of Jacob. But he conceded and accepted him as Esau. And when he had enjoyed the meal, he blessed Jacob. And when that was all done, Jacob left. And shall we say, sometimes we use the expression, just in the nick of time, he was out. And Esau came in with what he had prepared. And then he presented himself to the dad, to Isaac. And Isaac, when he heard him pronounce himself to be Esau, he trembled. He said, who? 
And then he realized what had happened. And he said, your brother has already come. He already has a blessing. And there's nothing that can be done about it. It's irrevocable now. And so there was a hatred, a seed of hatred, in Esau's heart. And Esau declared that he was going to kill Jacob. But he was going to wait for their father to end his earthly sojourn. And then after that, he was going to murder him. Their mother knew about that too. And so again, she devises a plan, this time to save the life of her son, Jacob, her favorite son, and sent him off to be with her people. And he went and he acquired a wife and stayed many years. And then he came back and knew he was going to have to face Esau. And he feared, actually, for his life because he thought perhaps this root of bitterness had continued to grow and fester and that Esau was still awaiting his opportunity to end his life. But they had a congenial meeting, a congenial uh, restoration or meeting, adjoining back together. And it seemed that the hatred that Esau had was not there anymore. In fact, he expressed gratitude towards his brother and love for him. And they went on. But somehow, things went along, and the descendants of these two began to have troubles, lots of troubles. And it just continued on and on and on. I've talked about how it's amazing how many verses of the Bible talks about that animosity that grew. And so while it seemed that Esau, as far as he was personally concerned, had dealt with the anger that was in his heart. But somehow that root of bitterness was in the hearts of his descendants, and it got really bad. So this, let me go now to the book and read some of the first part again. It says a vision in verse 1 of Obadiah, thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. We have heard a report from the Lord's, from the Lord, and a messenger has been sent among the nations, saying, Arise and let us go up against her for battle. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You shall be greatly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you, you who dwell in the cleft of the rock, whose habitation is high, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Though you ascend as high as the eagle, and though you set your nest among the stars, from there I will bring you down. The verdict of the judgment is given. Well, if there's a verdict, there has to be charges, and there's conviction, <laughs> evidence a tallying of what the thing was that was done that was wrong, and that follows. I talked about Genesis 12. One of the things I want us to do now is I'm going to go back there again, but then this time I'm also going to read from Genesis 17. Because 
I want to draw attention again to really what it is and what the situation was with the Edomites in their relation to Israel and how of a much of a compromised position they were in. In verse, uh, verses 1 to 3 of chapter 12 in Genesis, Now the Lord has said to Abram, Get out of your country, from your family, and from your father's house, to the land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. That's what God is saying. And so God is then showing us something of his plan, something of his program, something of what he was going to accomplish. And there was nothing anybody could do to cause that to not happen. People could bulk, uh, uh, could fight against what God's plan was, but they couldn't overturn it. Now let me turn to chapter uh, 17 in Genesis. I'm doing this because many times we have talked about Israel being the covenant people of God. And I'm drawing attention to this section just for that purpose now. In chapter 17 of Genesis, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am, I am almighty God. Walk before me and be blameless. And I will make my covenant between me and you and will multiply you exceedingly. Then Abraham fell on his face and God talked with him saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with you and you shall be a father of many nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you a father of many nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of you, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you and their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and your descendants after you. Also, I give to you and your descendants after you the land in which you are a stranger, all the land of Canaan as an everlasting possession, and I will be your God. Two things. Look at verse number 10. My text says, in, as the first word, it says for. For violence against your brother Jacob. Now, your text might say because. And I think that's a good way. I think that's probably a better for us to, to think about the word because. The judgment that's going to come to Esau, I mean to Edomites, and all these things that are laid out before we get to verse 10. It says it is because 
of violence against your brother, Jacob. And so when we ask the question, why is it that this horrible judgment is coming to the people of Edom? Why is that? One answer we can give is that they had done these horrible things to their brother, to their relative. We now are talking about blood relations. And so the text is telling us that blood relations should mean something. It should mean something. And so that we could say. But I want to draw us now to our attention to another verse. Look at verse 13. Verse 13 says in the first part of it, you should not have entered the gate of my people. You should not have entered the gate of my people. So then why was Edom in the crosshairs of God's judgment? We said they did horrible things to their brother. But who was their brother? This verse says that God identified them as my people. So that the transgression of Edom was not merely that they were trampling on their own flesh and blood, but they were trampling on the people whom God had identified as my people. That is, that's, that's enormous. I mean, it's, it's bad enough that they're just trampling on their own flesh and blood. But when it says that they are trampling upon the people of God, my people. As we said, these are the covenant people of God. Let me say this to you. What would have happened if the Edomites had been successful in what they were attempting to do? Essentially, they would have been, if they could have been successful, they would have virtually exterminated these people whom God called my people. But that couldn't be. So really, they didn't understand what they were up against. God called them my people. And so they then were covenant, people of the covenant. And God was, they had a special program, a special place in God's program. And they had to fulfill that place and anybody who was to stand in opposition to it will be in a bad place. God's special people. So one of the things that we can gain from this by way of uh, application, I think, in a general sense, is that God does have a program He does have a plan. He is working out the details of his plan. He's going to accomplish his goals and his purposes. And so if we can understand what those are and get ourselves in the right alignment with him, we'll find ourselves in a good place. 
individually or as nations. No one can stand in opposition to God and win. The Edomites conducted themselves as if they could do it, but they couldn't. Now, when you talk to people, our contemporaries, you probably have encountered some who think they can do it, but they can't either. And so God said, I have a people, and through that people, I'm going to accomplish certain things. And through that people, all the nations of the world, all the peoples of the earth will be blessed And that people was the people against whom Edom had fought and done all these horrible things. We are recipients of the promise in the sense that through that line, we get all the way down to where God has made the provision for our sin through his son. And so we are... We are being blessed. There are many more blessings. Many more will be blessed as a result of the promises that God made. So one thing is certain, that God's promises, they are certain, and he will keep them. And so there's nothing that we can do to overturn them. And even if we could, that would be to our peril. And so it's good that we can't. Now, let me go back here and look again and pick up the next several verses here in the book of Obadiah. We are seeing some of the skill of the writer in in the way some of these things are presented. And we talked about different uh, forms of literature in that, or what we call genre, and we see some of this rendered in what seems to be parallelisms, which is a prominent feature of poetry in Hebrew literature. Now, it says here, we see the vividness and the pictures that are being painted to help to get the picture, I mean, get things straight in the minds of the hearers. He says, if these have come to you, if robbers by night, or how you will be cut off, Will they not have stolen until they had enough? So now he's illustrating what the seriousness is of the condition that they are in and what's going to happen and how devastating the devastation is going to be. And and comparing that and likening it to what robbers do. Robbers come in and they get a certain amount and then they go on. They don't take it all. Or if grape gatherers, he said, were to come, they would leave something before behind the gleanings. We talked about those things before in some, to some extent. In verse 6 it says, Oh, how Esau shall be searched out, and how his hidden treasures shall be sought after. All the men in your confederacy shall force you to the border. Those people who were allies are turning against them. They're going to force you. The men who are at peace with you, the men who eat at your table, your friends, they're going to deceive you and will prevail against you. And this 
those eat your bread will lay a trap for you, and no one is aware of it. We talked about those things. And that's really quite an interesting uh, trio, I guess you could say, of expressions here. These three, these three things here talk about their, the men of their confederacy, those men who are at peace with them, and those ones who eat bread at their table, covering all these. It's like, I thought I, I thought I had allies. I thought I had friends. I thought I had confidants. I thought there were people who were standing with me and would stand with me. And all those people have turned against me. Will I not in that day, says the Lord, even destroy the wise men from Edom and understanding and understanding from the mountains of Esau? And we talked about that and we referred to Job when we uh, did uh, talk about that before. But in that country, they were, there were people who were known as wise men, people of wisdom, people who would be able to understand and discern and be able to give good advice and wisdom and guidance. But God says none of that will matter anything. None of that will account and will be of any help at all. They could depend on that, and evidently they have been. But God says, now you're at a place where no matter how wise your wise men think they are, whatever they give to you by way of advice is not going to help. Then your mighty men, those ones who are, shall we say, the decorated soldiers, those ones who have earned, earned their rank and know how to conduct warfare. And he says, oh, Timon, a word standing in representing Edomites, a grandson of Esau, shall be dismayed. Your armies are not going to help you. They're not going to be of any benefit. To the end that everyone from the mountains of Esau may be cut off by slaughter. So it's a dire picture, a devastating picture. But that's the indictment, I mean, or, or the verdict. Or, well, I guess we actually probably should say that's the sentence. <laughs> I'm getting that all turned around. That's the sentence that's being pronounced. Now he says four, and we're getting out to the verse 10 because. And this is where they give some details. So what did they do? See, the court has to hear what it is that the person has been accused of. And so here's the indictment, I think we can say it that way. So what, is, what have they been accused of? It says here, violence. We said that against your brother Jacob. That sounds like a pretty serious charge. Shame shall cover you, and you shall be cut off forever. And then it says, in the day that you stood on the other side. In the day the strangers carried captive his forces when foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem. Even you were as one of them. That sounds like what we use the word traitor to talk about. Traitors. To join the enemy and say, I stand with the enemy. 
one of the things that I thought about is a person can't be standing with the enemy against God and not even be aware of it. They can be standing with the opposition to God and not even be aware. It's just like we read in the verse here, in verse, in the verse 7. It said, no one is aware of it. These three things that we read. Why wouldn't they be aware? We talked about deceit. And it talked about how Edom had deceived herself. They were deceived. Someone who is deceived can be standing with the enemy and doing the enemy's bidding by all the while convinced that they're doing the Lord's will. That's a horrible thing. It's a very scary thought. But we shouldn't be something that causes us panic. I think about Brother Ben's lesson yesterday. As believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, if we are his, panic is not our proper response. We might have it temporarily, but the God who is our God never fails. And he will see to the ultimate rescue of all the, who are his. It may not look like we want it to look. It may not be in the timing that we desire. But his promises are sure. And our trust in him is never misplaced. It says here that these people still with the enemy. Edomites, the brother, as if they were one of them. Now in verse 12, but you should not have gazed on them, on your brother, on the day of your brother, in the day of his captivity, or in the day of his adversity. When he was going through all these things, you're just standing there, you're just gazing. It's like a spectacle to you. Or we think about a spectacle. Somebody join a, a sport as a spectator. You know, we have this stadium filling up with over 100,000 people every Saturday, and, and, and they're enjoying what's going on down there. But this is not a proper attitude for the Edomites with relation to their brother in the time of their adversity. Nor should you have rejoiced over the children of Judah in the day of their destruction. See, the Lord says that we ought not to rejoice and be glad even when the people who are wrong are being abraded. We shouldn't be rejoicing about that. There's a sadness to it. We all believe in justice being done so that the, the righteous will be exonerated and that the, the unrighteous will be declared unguilty and will receive just punishment. We believe in all that. But it's not a time of rejoicing because there's a sadness in it that they had to come to that. So, in verse 12, 
nor should you have spoken proudly in the day of the distress. Verse 13, you should not have entered the gate of my people. That verse again. In the day of their calamity, indeed, you should not have gazed on their affliction in the day of their calamity, nor laid hands on their substance. You should not have stood at the crossroads to cut off those among them who escaped. Can you imagine such a thing? It would seem bad enough to just be nonchalant and watch the thing happen. But to take the next step, as it says here, to prevent the escape of those who are escaping. Talk about culpability. Nor should you have delivered up those among them who remain horrible, awful things in the day of their distress. So this then is, this is the indictment of these people. And when we think about that in light of what we started with in those verses in Genesis 12 and 17, they were doing all of these things against the people whom God had designed to be conduits of his program, people whom God had identified and called my people. And they did all this. And as a consequence of that, they're going to get their God's response to all of their their doing. And it's not good. But uh, when we're studying in Amos, we read this verse. In chapter 1 and verse 11, it says, For three transgressions of Edom and for four, I will not turn away its punishment because he pursued his brother with a sword and cast off all pity. His anger tore perpetually, and he kept his wrath forever. He was set in opposition to the people of God and to God. And God says, do that, but it's for a limited term. And when that term is up, punishment is coming. Now, for a limited term, I was thinking about John in chapter 3, where it talks about salvation and the opportunity. And then it talks about, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. That God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. But then it talks about the condemnation. 
The light is coming to the world, but men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. The Edomites love darkness rather than light. And as the text says for individuals now, already condemned. Why? Because they have not believed of the name of the only begotten Son of God. Already condemned. Not will be, but already are. And so the problem is not, as some people might think, that they're okay, and they just have to remain okay. God says already condemned. And so the problem is, how do I get out of the condemnation? Well, that's what his son's death was about, to provide him the way for that. Edom had access to the word of God that was delivered and available to them. They needed only to put their faith and trust in those words. But they didn't. People now need only to put their faith and trust in God's word. And nowhere else is there going to be any help. We're going to pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you. Because we know that you do the glory and the honor and the praise that we are even able to stand and to speak these words. It was your program to provide for us a solution to sin. Your son, the only begotten. It was your program that these words should be recorded, preserved, and transferred to us. And now we ask that you will help us to understand how best to appropriate those things to our own living so that you will be honored and glorified with us in what we do. We pray in the name of Christ our Savior with thanksgiving. Amen.